Good morning. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and our guest today on Healthy Options is Dr. Mitu Storoni, the author of Stress Proof, The Scientific Solution to Protect Your Brain and Body and Be More Resilient Every Day. Dr. Storoni did her medical training in London at the University of Cambridge and is certified in ophthalmology. She also has a PhD in neuro-ophthalmology, and she has undertaken research in neuro-ophthalmology and perceptual neuroscience at Cambridge, in England, and at Harvard Medical School. Mitu Storoni is also a teacher of a form of yoga called hot yoga. And Dr. Storoni is with us today by phone to discuss what she has learned in her research and about how each of us can better manage stress and become more resilient. Welcome to Healthy Options, Dr. Mitu Storoni. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. That's it's great. Um, so I, w- I want to start, you know, we're talking about stress and we're also talking about our whole human condition, I would say. A lot of people talk about stress all the time. Perhaps you can just fill us in a little bit about what's happening in our bodies when, when we talk about uh, our nervous system being stressed. What, what's, what, what should our bodies be doing and what can go out of whack? So normally we are very well equipped to function um, in the world we are in and the brain is comfortable doing things that we ask it to do. Chronic stress is when the brain becomes uncomfortable doing these things. So that's a very basic way of looking at it. But basically, the brain is constantly switching modes at which it's functioning. So normally we, we... go around our world, go around our lives in a very goal-directed way. We plan, we think things through, and we achieve what we want to achieve. When we think we are under threat, when we're being threatened, the brain flips its mode and it becomes very reflexive. It responds to immediate threats, to the immediate context of, of what it is we're doing. When it is in that mode, several things go under, are, are put in place. So, for instance, in acute stress, we become instantaneously insulin resistant. We start becoming a little bit inflamed. Our body clock becomes opening to tuning. Our emotional and rational behavior changes. So, we become our emotional responses become dysregulated. And the brain flips from thriving to surviving. And on the back of this, of course, our stress hormones, our stress response becomes excessive. Now, this is acute stress. And normally, a comfortable brain recovers from this acute stress and we go about what we're doing. Some extremely powerful research has been revealing, first in animal studies and for the first time in humans this year, that chronic stress, when the brain does not recover from these little bouts of acute stress or when the stress is too much or too intense or too prolonged, chronic stress changes the brain's structure. It doesn't just change the brain structure. It visibly shrinks parts of the human brain. And these parts include things, areas such as the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is our higher brain. It's the brain that we use to make decisions, to think things through, to analyze problems, to go to organize our behaviors. This part of the brain becomes thinned with chronic stress. But the same study that's shown this has also shown something really promising, that this thinning is reversible. It is reversed when we withdraw from that stress and we heal and we recover. 
So when chronic stress changes the brain structure at this level, it actually affects us, entire system, in at least seven ways. We end up not being able to regulate emotions. Our emotional regulation becomes awry. Our body clocks malfunction. We don't just have one clock. We have many clocks. They malfunction. We become insulin resistant. We may lose motivation. Our entire stress response to everyday things changes. It's either too much or it becomes too little. And as I said earlier, the brain flips from a thriving mode to surviving mode. So synaptic plasticity becomes affected in some key regions and we become inflamed. So these are seven things and seven things you wouldn't normally associate with chronic stress. But when chronic stress changes the brain, this is what happens. So we, we've heard of flight, fright and freeze. Would, would you say then that our bodies are getting stuck in the freeze mode when this happens? Exactly. That's a very good analogy. Fight, flight, or freeze is what happens in the acute setting. And right. there, the acute stress response that the brain sets off helps us to escape from there. Um, sometimes freezing helps, sometimes uh, flight helps. Now, as soon as it happens, as soon as this response is triggered, the immediate threat is somehow overcome. And then when the threat is gone, the brain flips back. And you are right. Chronic stress is when the brain continues to think it is under threat. Right. The, the situation is uncertain and it's not predictable. And it stays in that mode. That's correct. So, so we have, you know, we, we have a very sophisticated audience here. So uh, we can talk a little bit brain science. So we can talk about the parasympathetic and sympathetic system. And I, I think that would be really enlightening to, to put this in, a, in that kind of physiological context just for, just for a moment to kind of give us a, a little bit of an idea of what we're talking about, what a normal, normally responsive system is, and then what happens when we have that acute response. And then what happens, what, what are the hormones that happen when, when we're chronically, un, or, or imagine that we're chronically uh, in flight? Okay, so as you said, you're right. The autonomic nervous system is the mediator of the stress response. So the autonomic nervous system has got two arms, sympathetic and parasympathetic. Um, we are always, both of those arms are always switched on in all of us, and their gains are modulated. So if you imagine them as, as sounds or as tones, we can increase their volume or we can reduce their volume. So the sympathetic and parasympathetic input that's going into our heart all the time um, changes a little bit depending on our demands. So when we need to do something strenuous, the sympathetic tone of the, of the signal reaching our heart increases and the parasympathetic tone decreases. So that's how we function. And you're right, when we're in the middle of a stress response, our sympathetic system gets activated. Our parasympathetic system gets toned down. Now what happens when we go into chronic stress? So the autonomic nervous system begins at the level of the hypothalamus. Mm. And you have two routes through which that stress system is triggered. One is, is um, bottom-up. So um, if, you start, if you have severe pain anywhere or trauma anywhere, that starts a stress response. The second is top-down. So if you experience psychological stress or emotional stress, that too triggers the same autonomic nervous system. But here's the difference. 
when you are responding to things around you, so psychological stresses, social stresses, emotional stresses, things that are not physically causing you harm but are setting off the stress response. If you imagine that as a little tinderbox that's being set alight, the threshold for that tinderbox to be set to be set alight is dictated by your higher brain, by your prefrontal circuits, by your cortical subcortical interaction. So you hmm. have your your higher thinking brain that's always coordinating the other departments of your brain to decide what in your environment deserves attention, what in your environment should be muted down. So if you are you know, writing, say you're studying or you're writing an email, your work, your cortical circuits, dumb down the noise, the disturbances coming out from your from your environment, and they help you to focus. But at the same time, if you're walking through a park, you know, like Central Park, um, like I have been late in the evening, you want your brain knows that you have to be alert for threats so that you can act quickly. I, I, I was going to say, what are you doing walking through Central Park at night? Don't, do not do no, that. No, I'm, not, I'm not walking at night. I'm walking <laughs> during the day. But my point is if you were to walk at night. <laughs> Don't do that. Very, okay. No, I won't do that. Don't worry. No, no, no. <laughs> if you were to walk at night, then your brain would... Uh, I'm not even sure you're allowed to walk at night or through Central Park, but anyhow... Um, your brain would then reassign its, its priorities. Your higher brain would reassign its priorities. It would give, place more emphasis on the signals coming in from your emotional circuit. So in that way, your higher brain, your, cort- your prefrontal cortex, and its, some of its uh, neighbors, parts of the parietal cortex as well, that, that part of the brain acts like a CEO, and it decides what, where to place attention, when not to place attention. So... Its integrity and its health is vital in developing, in, in, in being the gate for whether or not something triggers your stress response. Hmm. Something coming from your environment triggers your emotional circuit, which triggers a stress response. So if your higher brain is not doing well, and I'll come to that in a moment, but if, some, you know, if you're not looking after your higher brain, if your prefrontal circuits are compromised, then you will no longer, your brain will no longer be able to regulate your emotions or regulate where you place attention. And that lowers the threshold for your environment triggering stress responses. It also changes the way in which you respond to the stress and how quickly you recover. Hmm. So, so it actually sits yeah. at the top of the autonomic nervous system, one level above it. And And so... When you've had chronic stress from any source, um, and and in this case, are, are we not? Are we talking about post-traumatic stress? Or are we talking more of our uh, uh, less less you know pathological in a way? Or you know, are we talking about getting stuck in traffic? Are we uh, everyday kinds of things? Or are yeah, we? So- so, so, there are really, so you can look at it broadly as two types of stress. So right. One is the acute stress and one is chronic stress. Acute stress is the kind of stress that you, um, you just described sitting in traffic. So it could be sitting in traffic and then as soon as the traffic moves, you relax. The stress is over. Okay, but you relax from that stress. Chronic stress is when like an elastic band regardless of what caused that stress, right. you don't relax, you don't recoil. 
And that can be, it of course is, um, one example is PTSD, post-traumatic stress. But it can also be the result of sitting in that car in traffic every day and not recovering enough from the stress response within mm. that car by the time you get another one. So it doesn't have to be a major event that causes chronic stress. It can be anything. And that's what's so intriguing, actually, about chronic stress. Um, and if you, if you explore the book, for instance, I mentioned that you could be someone who thinks you don't have any emotional stress, right. any emotional, um, you know, you're very in control of yourself and your emotions, you're happy with life. But the only thing that's, that, that maybe is different about you is you work shifts. Ah. Okay? You do nothing else but you do shift work. Now, there's one, th- there are several studies out there that show if you disrupt circadian rhythms in people, in, first it started off with animal studies, of course, and now we know that that's the case also in people, you give rise to depression. Mm. Okay? So something as simple as just working shifts and not regulating your daylight, night, uh, darkness exposure, that in itself is a source of chronic stress and that can change your brain, leading to the other consequences. Ah. So, so it doesn't just have to be a huge traumatic experience. It can be lots of small episodes of stress that you're not recovering from, as you should be, or it could be another aspect of your lifestyle that's, that's not being regulated. So... So this is um, this is pretty insidious. This is something that we can all learn how to work with. So I also want to get back to what you said earlier, that the brain actually changes, that there are changes in the amygdala, which is our emotional part of our, right, of our a primitive, would we say, part of our brain. But, and and that, that's really important in, the, in that immediate flight-fright scenario. And also you said in the, uh, the hippocampus. So what, what happens? How does that brain change? And how can our brains get better? How could that, that's, that seems like miraculous, doesn't it? When we have this idea of the brain being a solid, once you've matured, that's it, kind of, kind of entity. Yes, it is. To me, it's nothing short of miraculous, actually. You're right. So the brain is incredibly plastic. When For a long time, we used to assume that the plasticity of our brain stops when we reach adulthood. And now we are learning that the brain is actually con- constantly changing itself. And it keeps doing this for our entire life until the day we're no longer alive. And this has a positive side and a negative side. The positive side is the brain can change to adapt to anything. And you can manipulate the brain's environment to change it in the way you want. That's the positive side. The negative side is as it changes in response to the environment, some of the changes are not going to serve you. The changes are detrimental. Mm. And one of these changes is the change of chronic stress. So just a second ago, we spoke about the body clock and shift work. And we also talked about the emotions you get when you're sitting in a car. All of those change the brain under the banner of chronic stress, change the brain in the same way. And coming back to what you just asked, the specific regions of the brain that are affected, and this is really fascinating because in chronic stress, they're finding that the regions of the brain that appear to grow thinner 
Animal studies showed this first, and now human studies are showing this. These regions of the brain include the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is a bit of the brain just behind your forehead. The prefrontal cortex is the probably, I would say, the CEO of the brain because it regulates the rest of the brain. Hmm. And one of the areas it regulates is the amygdala. The amygdala is one of the regions of the brain that's Right, that's that's um, central to the emotional response of the brain, to our emotional circuitry. So, if your prefront, so the prefrontal cortex actually does two things: it can either increase the volume of your emotional of the amygdala, so of the emotional circuitry, or it can reduce the volume of the emotional circuitry. So, what it does is it regulates your emotional department. And in chronic stress, this regulation becomes impaired. Prefrontal regulation over the entire brain becomes impaired. And when it becomes impaired, on the background of also thinking you are constantly under threat in the state of chronic stress, your emotional circuitry stays on super high alert. And as, as is the case with neuroplasticity, the more you use something, the stronger it gets. The less you use something, the weaker it gets. Hmm. So in the state of chronic stress, you're in a state of high alert and you're in a state of enhanced emotional awareness, enhanced negative emotional reactivity. And what that does is, again, first animal studies showed this, and now human studies are also showing this, Parts of your basolateral amygdala, so the basolateral amygdala is a part of the amygdala, which is central in this emotional circuitry and our emotional reactivity to stress, to negativity. There is increased synaptic plasticity in these regions, and there is an enhanced volume in these areas um, after a period of chronic stress. And just as parts of this emotional circuitry seem to expand, synapses seem to grow, the opposite seems to happen within the prefrontal cortex. And you mentioned the hippocampus. So the hippocampus can be seen in two halves. So the hippocampus is part is, is central to our in, to our memory to memory formation in general, long term memory formation, mid term memory formation. It also is central to learning. And the hippocampus seems to be very sensitive to chronic stress. Um, in all animal studies, there's a very clear change in hippocampal volume. There's a shrinkage, a clear shrinkage of hippocampal volume whenever animals are made to go through chronic stress. So just as the prefrontal cortex, parts of the prefrontal cortex seem to shrink, parts of the amygdala seem to expand, mm. and the hippocampus, parts of the anterior, so the hippocampus is, is divided broadly into two regions. One region is affiliated, if you, if you see it like that, with the higher brain with the prefrontal cortex, this part of the hippocampus also shrinks. And, you know, mouse studies have been extraordinary here because in mice, new brain cells actually grow within the hippocampus. Wow. Which is extraordinary. In humans, we know that there is more synaptic plasticity within within the hippocampus. We haven't yet found the presence of um, new brain cells to the same degree. Ah. But this plasticity and this growth is visibly massively impaired when an animal is put under chronic stress. Mm. So you see the seesaw effect. You see one part of the brain thriving, the emotional circuitry, 
And you see the other part of the brain, the control center, almost shriveling up. Oh, my. And this is, you know, this is, it's so exciting to watch. But um, as I just said, what's so exciting is that this is reversible. You can change this back. um, And I think that's where we all need to, you know, put put interventions in place, take action against chronic stress, because... all of these changes are well. I, I want. I think we can we can move into that in 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 a, in a moment. But uh, I just want to remind people, especially those who have just tuned in, that you're listening to the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and we are speaking with Dr. Mitu Storoni, author of Stress Stress Proof: The Scientific Solution to Protect Your Brain and Body and Be More Resilient Every Day. And we're going to learn how to cope with all of this stress and we've just learned that our our we have synaptic plasticity that our bodies and our minds can can adapt in a positive way we can heal ourselves from chronic stress so what would i think we all have some idea of what the what our physiological what our body does when we're under stress how does this i guess i'll ask you how does it affect our heart does it affect our digestion we talked about the circadian rhythms which have to do with sleep and also other body clocks and we can talk about that um, and I know that you're an, a neuro-ophthalmologist, and I definitely want to be sure that we can talk about what, what the eyes do, what the pupils do when we're, we're under stress. And, and so that's a big question. You can take any part of that. <laughs> sure. I'll try to take all. So, yeah, so I'll answer your last question first. So uh, the eyes are actually, that's one of the reasons why I became so interested in, in stress, because the eyes are a real window to what's going on inside the head, inside the mind, inside the brain. And when, you, when we talk about the eyes, it's really the pupils that I find the most fascinating of all. So our pupils are the apertures at the front of our eyes. Um, and the pupils are amazing to study. I actually studied them as part of my research. Mm. They are amazing to study because... We talked about the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is covered, it's buried under our skins, under our tissues, deep inside our bodies. But there, are only, there is only one point in our entire body where the autonomic nervous system comes to the surface and you can watch it from the outside. And that site are the eyes because the pupils tell you what the autonomic nervous system is actually doing. So if you get excited, if you grow excited, your pupils expand. If you relax, they shrink. And if you study these, you know, fluctuations, these perturbations very carefully under a microscope, you can gauge and you can even measure um, autonomic reactivity in an individual. So that's that's super exciting. So um, in answer to your question, what what happens in the body um, generally in in our physiology when we're under stress and how does this um, relate to things like the heart, digestion, so on. So this is, again, super interesting. We all have, our autonomic nervous system has a baseline. So we have sympathetic um, activity, which carries on at a certain level, and we have parasympathetic activity, which is set at a certain level. And when everything is good, when everything is optimal, those two activities are at their optimal level. So they're not too high, they're not too low. When we're under chronic stress, 
the sympathetic activity rises and it stays high. The autonomic nervous system is the first is the first relay switch in our stress response. The first thing that happens, you know, if you're driving in a car and you suddenly encounter traffic and you think, oh no, I have to be you know at work in 15 minutes, I won't make it. That emotional response triggers your autonomic reactivity. Once your autonomic reactivity is triggered, then the hormonal responses come into play. So, in the setting of chronic stress, first of all, your baseline autonomic, autonomic nervous system is set at a different level. Your sympathetic um, activity stays higher. And secondly, you will also find aberrant levels of your stress hormones, especially cortisol, in your bloodstream. So now let's come back to sym the sympathetic level being set higher. A really exciting study, um, actually it was published only last week, I believe, has shown wow. that you can actually predict a person's cardiovascular disease risk by looking at the way the, 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 person, the person's brain responds to stress. Okay, and this is incredibly exciting because this shows you how when you are in chronic stress, the brain's connectivity changes and it stays changed. And when it stays changed, you respond to things in your environment in a different way. And as we've just discussed, you respond to things in your environment in an enhanced way because your emotional reactivity the threshold for emotional reactivity is lower, so you are even more emotionally reactive than you otherwise would be. Hmm. If you react in this way, then certain other patterns of your brain's um, connections become manifest. So you feel there's more activity, for instance, in a part of the brain called the insula, which feels pain. But you can actually look at a person's brain when they're responding to stress and predict how high their blood pressure will fluctuate and hence predict their cardiovascular disease risk. Yeah, that's so extraordinary, real, yeah. Isn't it just extraordinary? So you can actually walk in and have a brain scan to judge your heart disease risk. Um, and extrapolating on from that, in chronic stress, because sympathetic activity stays raised, a high blood pressure, so hypertension, one of the causes of hypertension in the population is having higher sympathetic drive. So, for instance, one of the treatments that are being investigated now for something known as nocturnal hypertension. So, in some of us, we are fine during the day and the blood pressure tends to peak during the night in a very bad way. And one of the treatments for that is, in fact, melatonin. Melatonin is the darkness hormone. And the reason why melatonin helps is because melatonin reduces sympathetic drive and increases, uh, it shifts the balance. So it increases the parasympathetic to sympathetic ratio by reducing sympathetic drive and increasing parasympathetic drive. So as soon as you lower your sympathetic activity, you're getting rid of hypertension. You're normalizing your blood pressure. So that's another aspect of how... Um, your, how your stress reactivity, the, st the state of your brain's reactivity to stress and its baseline autonomic nervous system signals or activity influence something as distant or as 
conceivably irrelevant as your heart disease risk and your blood pressure. And then you also just, I think you mentioned the relationship between the brain or between stress and the gut or yes. the digestive system. So again, this is another emerging field because it's throwing away a lot of the things we used to know um, because it's making us look at old information in a completely new way. So the gut is now, we now know that there is a very strong gut-brain connection. And this connection exists on many different levels. Chronic stress has got one particularly intriguing relationship with the gut, and that comes through the gut bacteria. So our gut contains all the way the entire tract, the entire digestive tract is colonized by millions of microorganisms, bacteria, viruses, and fungi. They are all living together very happily in an ecosystem. And they would be very happy living in that ecosystem, but our lifestyles change that ecosystem. So as an example, there are two groups of bacteria, two, two large species of bacteria, and of course they have their subspecies populations. One of them is lactobacilli, the lactobacilli group, and the second is the bifidobacterium group. And studies have shown that when people go through intense exam stress, these two groups of bacteria uh, shrink in, in pop their population numbers shrink. If you then replenish these uh, bacteria, your stress reactivity changes. Well, and wow, that, let's just take a moment that we can actually change our stress reactivity by no noticing, and you'll talk about this, I'm sure, what we can eat that would be more helpful to this um, process. Yes, that's amazing. Exactly. Um, one really exciting study, for instance, has shown that irritable bowel syndrome, which I think most of your listeners will have heard about, IBS is a banner, it's, a, it's an umbrella term for lots of um, anomalies in our digestion, which cannot be explained by other diseases. So it's a diagnosis of exclusion, but it can include a wide spectrum of symptoms from things like just general heartburn and discomfort to constipation and other bowel um, irregularities to abdominal pains. So it can be a very large spectrum. And one very interesting study has shown, well, several studies have shown that there is a strong link between irritable bowel syndrome and depression. Other studies have also shown that if you that some of the studies have been carried out on soldiers who are being deployed, and they've shown that the stress of deployment and the stress of these exercises changes bacterial populations in their in their digestive system, gives rise to irritable bowel syndrome. So stress has a causal link with IBS, at least in in, in a large majority of people. Secondly. Another study has shown that if you take someone who has IBS and you replenish, you, you, give, you treat them with probiotics to normalize their gut bacteria, and you then look at their brains under the brain scanner as they react to stress, the activity within the amygdala visibly changes. Their amygdala visibly reacts less intensely to emotional stress than it did before, just after a course 
of probiotics. That's incredible. I, I, that's incredible. I'm, I'm going to just say again that uh, for those who just tuned in, um, you are listening to the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and we are speaking with Dr. Mitu Storoni, and the topic is how to cope with stress, and uh, she is the author of Stress Proof, the Scientific Solution to Protect Your Brain and Body and Be More Resilient Every Day. So we've just been uh, learning that probiotics, that um, that the gut bacteria, the health of that can affect how our stress response works. And um, we also learned that melatonin and how we sleep, I guess, would be, would be part of, uh, of being healthy as well, would, would you say? Yes, very much so. Um, melatonin works, again, in lots of ways. It, it reduces sympathetic activity, so it makes us feel calm in general. But also there's another very interesting effect. So when you're sleeping, at, when we're all sleeping at night, we go through different phases of sleep. One phase is the slow-wave sleep, SWS phase, and another phase is known as rapid eye movement sleep, abbreviated to REM sleep. Now, REM sleep is emerging as really, really critical in our response to stress, and it's emerging as especially critical in the context of post-traumatic stress disorder. During REM sleep, it seems we all see, we all unlearn negative memories. <clears throat> so during the day or during you know our lifetimes, we go through experiences, we have thoughts that we want to get rid of because hanging on to those negative things, negative ideas, fearful memories creates you know creates more stress because it means we react more violently whenever something reminds us of that memory in the similar way that we behave when we are under post-traumatic stress. So getting rid of negative, fearful memories is really important for our sanity and for reducing our stress response in general. REM sleep seems to be critical in unlearning these fearful memories. And melatonin, a, a, a reduction in melatonin, so if you're working lots of shifts, you're not getting enough melatonin, a reduction of mel- in melatonin leads to less REM sleep. Similarly, replenishing melatonin by increasing your exposure to darkness increases or normalizes your REM sleep. And so doing something as simple as making sure you're getting darkness every day makes you stress resilient. Right. So we're, we're not suggesting everybody run out and buy melatonin, <laughs> if you no, even no, can. No, no, <laughs> no. that you can no, actually no. change your environment and your habit, and that can affect that. So a dark room kind of situation when you're sleeping. Exactly. I mean, actually, nothing in the book requires you to go and buy anything. You can do all of these by making very clever changes. So with melatonin, it's very simple. Your body produces it as a cycle. So um, it peaks during the night, and it declines again early in the morning. And the easiest way to increase melatonin is really by getting darkness. So as soon as it becomes evening, wear blue-blocking glasses. Keep your light dimmed very low. Stop watching television if you can. If you must watch television, watch it at the lowest brightness setting. Make sounds lower. Don't have any social excitement. And get, make your environment slightly cooler and don't, um, don't arouse yourself. So don't increase your sympathetic activity. All of those help you, help your body 
to reach you know, the nighttime mode, and as soon as it does that, your melatonin production will start. So that would help insomnia too, for which is can be a stress response. Would you say? Yeah. Yes, it would. So insomnia is um, melatonin is now increasing use for, for for insomnia as a treatment, but actually without using it, you know, as as a tablet or or as a medication, you can change your lifestyle to help that. Sleep is something is a very interesting. Um, mechanism because what what you need with sleep is two things you need something called a sleep debt so you wake up in the morning and start collecting sleep debts for every moment that you're awake so by the end of the night by the end of the evening you've collected a large amount of sleep debt by staying awake you need that and the second thing you need to fall asleep at night is your body's clock it acts like a guard like a security guard it lets you in to whichever world you're trying to enter. So at the end of the evening, if you want to go to sleep, your body's clock will only let you fall asleep if it's the right time. Huh. So you need both of these things to fall asleep. So for many of us, we collect sleep debt because we, you know, we work, we, we were awake all day, we're working hard. But when it comes to the evening, because of deranged body clock, because of, you know, we're not we're keeping the lights on very, very very late afterwards. We're looking at our blue light emitting mobile phones or working from our laptops. All of that messes up our body's clocks. So if you rectify that and you have a sleep debt, you're much more likely to ease into sleep very, very quickly. So no watching the news at night is, is uh, yeah, or anyway, is <laughs> for all that good stimulation, yes. <laughs> Yeah, no, some nice, relaxing, Mozart, no watching the news, yeah. <laughs> That's great. So there are other aspects when we, you know, we're, 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 there's so much to discuss that, uh, that this, is, this is very exciting. So we know about, now we know about melatonin, now we know a l- about the bacteria. So in terms of diet, does that mean we should be all eating sauerkraut or lacto-fermented sauerkraut? By the way, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, what do you recommend in terms of our of our diet that would be helpful? Um, the more diverse your diet, the more diverse the bacteria you're likely to nurture with that diet. So, what you're eating feeds the existing bacteria inside you. Now, on top of that, you can take in live bacteria, and one way of doing that is by having fermented food. So um, yogurt is a great option. Yes. Fermented foods of other kinds, such as, as you say, sauerkraut, uh, is another great option. In Japan, there they eat a lot of natto, natto is fermented soybeans. Those are also good options. And really what you're trying to do is create, is nurture as diverse a range of bacteria as you can, because it's not just taking one bacteria and, you know, it's not an on-off switch. You are trying to nurture an, a rainforest with lots of different right. organisms. So the more diverse your organisms, the better. And every time you're eating, every time you're getting stressed, you're essentially reducing the numbers of some populations of good bacteria. So if you can replenish these as often as you can during the day, it's very, very good for you. It's, it's so amazing. We're, we're, we're discussing stress, and now we're discussing sauerkraut <laughs> so so this idea of uh of how connected 
our whole bodies are to this whole autonomic nervous system response and how everything is truly affected is is becoming so clear and and you have done a um, mass amount of research so you're really citing a, a number of science, of studies and such in your book and that's that's uh that's where a lot of your information has come from is that true yes so what i find is that many stress um stress uh, kind of resilience solutions or much of the advice we get on stress tends to have only one idea or one intervention and i've noticed you know personally from me personally from people around me close family and friends that some of these work for some people but they don't work for everyone and it's always puzzled me why this is the case because you know we've always all of us understand the same thing when we use the word stress so i looked into the the literature scientific literature to try to explain you know why this anomaly exists and why is it that some people are stressed but they're stressed in a completely different context to another to other people um, and yet the word stress is still common in everyone so I found, so I, I read through, I'd say, well over a thousand um, papers, and I came up with around 600, 591 to be precise, um, <laughs> scientific papers, um, which, are, which I then condensed into hundreds of tips um, and tricks in my book. Um, every piece of advice I've given is, has got a paper, has got a study cited. And my, my intention was that I tried to cover it um, with to such a scope, to such an extent, that everyone, no matter which direction, th- through which route you're becoming stressed, you'll find something in the book for you. You know, just as we've been speaking, as you just said, <laughs> we've been talking about sauerkraut. <laughs> <laughs> and you wouldn't think that sauerkraut has got anything to do with stress. And, and you know, this is correct, because in some people... It could be that they're doing nothing wrong. Everything is, you know, you're living your life absolutely perfectly. But something is happening to your gut bacteria, and that is causing stress. Without you knowing it, that is causing the brain changes associated with chronic stress. So for someone like that, you might not, you know, pay much attention to things like your circadian rhythms or your emotion regulation, but the gut bacteria part will be very relevant to you and if you practice it you will feel physically feel change you know you will feel yourself changing when you respond to stress so that's why i went through so many papers because i wanted to have strategies in there that everyone found useful the same strategy may not be useful for everyone but everyone will find some strategies in there sure you you say an interesting thing too um after a stressful event um, that the worst thing you could do is relax. And I, I find that fascinating um, that we, in fact, want to move. We want to uh, do some exercise or, or do something to, um, to shift attention or somehow, you know, we're working on the gut level and the sleep level, but now after an acute or event or a way to change the brain as we're, we've been discussing that another thing would be some movement and and how do you how do you work with that tell me yes so when we are under stress when we've just come through a stressful experience at least i can definitely vouch for myself but i'm sure everyone would agree 
You cannot tell your mind what to think. You can say, okay, stop thinking about it, move on, you know, think about something else, but your mind refuses to listen. <laughs> and that is a problem because if your mind refuses to listen, what it does is it takes charge and it says, okay, I'm going to deal with this. And it replays what just happened over and over again. And every time it replays it, your stress response stays activated because every time you're replaying it, your emotional reactivity is triggered and that potentiates your stress response. So you never recover from that episode of stress. And your whole, the, the impact that a stressful episode leaves on you is determined by your response to it. So if your response to it, to it is prolonged, it creates a huge stress burden on you. So since your mind is so obstinate, won't tell, if you tell it to think something, it won't listen to you. So what you have to do is you have to tell it to do something. So you have to engage yourself, your whole brain, with an action. And that action has to absorb your attention and occupy your mind to such an extent that your mind cannot wander. And if well, it cannot wander, it cannot replay the event and your stress response will be terminated. So, so just to... to to think about what we talked about earlier, that so you're having the stress re response, your sympathetic nervous system, everything, your blood pressure, your digestion, everything is has has been affected. It seems so physiological. It seems like the level of of sensation. It's almost like you have to somehow and discharge that the somehow some in some way discharge the charge discharge the charge or make, um, would, would you say, and is that the, the exercise? Is that the meditation? Is that, is that something? Is that another way of looking at what, what you're doing when you're concentrating? I mean, is it only en enough to concentrate with our minds? Don't, don't we, have, we have to get our physiology involved too somehow, move the, the muscles and the, and the, you know, all of that? So this is, this is a very good point. So when you are in the moment of feeling acutely stressed, and that's actually a very nice way of looking at it, you're carrying this charge, this pent-up charge, and when you're acutely stressed, you've just discharged it. But, as you say, there's a little bit of the charge still hanging around. So there are two separate things that you have to think about here. The first is you don't want to keep potentiating that charge. So you don't want to keep re-triggering that stress response to right. keep yourself hyper-aroused. You don't want to do that. When you have this stress response, the gate that lets you, the, the, the gating mechanism, so the, the, the kind of, you can see the security guard again, allowing that stress response to begin in the first place, that begins at the level of your brain of where your brain chooses to place attention. So once you have the stress response beginning or once it has been discharged, your priority is, first of all, to change your attentional focus to something else so that that stress response, the initiator of that stress response, is terminated. Once you've achieved that, then you're right. You probably feel a sense of, you know, pent-up energy that you need to get rid of. In that context, going for a run, exercise, these are brilliant things. 
So immediately after your stress response, you want to engage the mind because engaging the mind gives you, if you imagine your, your brain like a car, you're going along a highway and it's veered out of control. And yes, as it's veering out of control, it's going at high speed. It's probably, you know, crashing against the barriers. It's, it's, it's uh, scratching itself against the barriers. But you can't think about the speed or the barriers at that moment. You have to think, I need to get the car back under control. I need to get the steering wheel under control. That's what you're trying to do immediately after the stress response, by controlling where your attention is placed. And you can only do that by engaging your attention. You can't just tell your attention to shine somewhere else. Once you've engaged your attention and you've detached it from your emotional reactivity, so you've, you're now absorbed mentally into doing something else, and your mind cannot wander back onto what just happened. As soon as you get there, your mind, your attention comes back under your control. You've got the car under your control. Once you've got the car back under your control, then you can start looking at your speed, getting your speed down, making sure you're not scratching against anything else, any of, any of the speed barriers or anything like that. So that's how it works. It's about priority attention first and then look at the rest. And when you're looking at the rest, actually, that's very, not a very good point you just raised because exercise is fantastic at doing that. But as, as I've mentioned in my book, you need to be clever about what kind of exercise and intensity of exercise. So, for instance, a study has shown that if you exercise at 70% or above of VO2 max, so VO2 max is a measure of how, um, how strenuous exercise is, so how much oxygen you're using up and so on. You can, you can measure it very easily in a, in a gym or sometimes even with some of those monitors. If you exercise intensely, so over 60 to 70, so over 60 to 70 VO2 max, then you create more stress. So you actually find more cortisol in, in the blood. But if you exercise at around 40% VO2 max, levels of cortisol seem to decline. Ah, so, interesting. So, which, is, which is really interesting. So um, once you've got your attention under control, yes, go and do something physical, but do it within that bracket that brings you back down to normal, that calms you down rather than arouses you all over again. So would something like yoga work? Meditation, those kinds of things? What? Well, meditation is, n unless you're doing a walking meditation, perhaps. But uh, So, uh, I mean, immediately after a stressful response, you can do anything as long as it traps your attention. And certainly I, I find that in my own case, um, and, you know, I'm sure with other people, it's sometimes hard if you're just sitting there trying to mentally focus on something without enough of an incentive to focus on that. Because if you've just had a stressful response, your mind will be drawn back to the emotional reactivity of what just happened. So what you're focusing on has to be powerful enough to engage you. So immediately after stressful response, in some cases at least, meditation might not be the most helpful thing. Right. It might be more helpful to do something like, you know, sounds silly, but play a computer game on your phone. Something <laughs> that gives you a reward, something that gives you an incentive, something that engages you. So in that context, um, engaging your mind is the priority. How you engage it, it's up to you. It depends on your likes and dislikes. It's certainly doing something with an incentive. You don't get bored, you don't wonder. So how would you prepare if you know you're about to go into a stressful situation, a meeting, an interview perhaps? A, uh, you know, or or a, some situation, is there a way that we can prepare ourselves? Mm, absolutely. So you have um, 
I've given you lots of strategies in the book of long-term, middle-term and short-term preparation. So in general, the better we get at focusing attention or controlling our attention, the better we become at controlling our emotions. So, you know, if you're in a room, um, if you're, say, you're, you're at a meeting at work and you are about to go to, to experience something very uncomfortable and very stressful, the best way of recovering from that or reducing the impact of that is by putting your attention onto other things away from the negativity of it so that the, your, your perception of the situation is less negative than it otherwise would be. So, you know, if you are... Um, also, when you're leaving that situation as well, you can quickly switch your attention to something else and stop dwelling. So that's one way. So training your attention is very good. And that's, you mentioned yoga and meditation. So meditators, especially a kind of meditation that's focused attention meditation, you're practicing focusing your attention. People who are good at doing that are very good at reducing their emotional reactivity in these situations. Now, that and, of course, things like um, exercise and sleep, these two increase, these two create buffers for stress. So if you know you're expecting huge stress two or three weeks along the line, making sure you're getting enough good sleep, especially this REM sleep we just talked about, and making sure you're getting good aerobic exercise every day reduces the, the extent to which chronic stress affects the brain structure. This has been clearly shown in animal studies. So doing these weeks in advance can help you. On the day, there are also certain things you can do. So on the day, you can start with as calm a baseline sympathetic uh, activity as you can, and that, of course, depends on your caffeine intake and how, you, how you've been living you know, all, all day, so how you woke up, your melatonin overnight, and so on. Then there are other things you can do. For instance, exercising 90 minutes before a stressful response has been shown to reduce the physiological reactivity to that stressful response. And this is a very clever thing. It, it, all it needs is perfect, precise timing. You don't need to go to a fancy gym. You can just put on some running shoes and go for a jog, go for a little run. But exercising 90 minutes before a stressful response can has been clearly shown to reduce your cortisol surge afterwards. Okay, so we just just have to keep, we have to just keep moving, it seems like. (laughs) That's one of the ways that, uh, at at a reasonable pace, and we have to sleep well, and we have to make sure we're eating as well as we can, and um, and, and that will... uh, at least give our um, nervous systems a chance to uh, adapt and to repair. And I think the idea that we've been discussing with uh, <clears throat> Dr. Mitu Steroni, the topic of how to cope with stress here on Healthy Options on WERU Community Radio, we, um, we know that the brain now is elastic in a way that can actually change the synapses. And that's, that's extraordinary. I I just uh, I'm I'm still um, enjoying the idea that we can actually help ourselves. Yes, it is it is incredibly extraordinary. And if you find that interesting, I'll tell you another thing that that I personally find super interesting. For a long time, at least when I was in medical school, we we thought that a synapse is about two brain cells, right? The two brain cells joining together is a synapse, and that's the picture that I had you know, going through my medical school, through my training and so on. 
recent studies show that actually a synapse is not just made of two brain cells. There's also a third cell involved known as an astrocyte and a fourth cell known as a microglia. And the, these four cells coming together at a synapse really tell you why chronic stress affects synaptic plasticity and why it affects synaptic plasticity in the prefrontal cortex and in the hippocampus, the regions that shrink in response to stress. So um, would you like me to well, tell you a little bit more? Well, I, I would love to, but I think we're going to have to, uh, un unfortunately, our time has come to an end, and I would love that. I think we might have to have you back on. <laughs> we'll do the next, um, the next interview from Hong Kong, right? <laughs> so... Um, Right now, I'm, I'm just going to have to come and do it in person, I think. <laughs> or you can come to Maine, which is another oh, beautiful yeah. place to come to. So, um, to be continued, um, I want to thank everyone for listening. You have been listening to the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. Our guest today has been Dr. Mitu Storoni, the author of Stress Proof, The Scientific Solution to Protect Your Brain and Body and Be More Resilient Every Day. So thank you, Dr. Steroni, for being with us on Healthy Options. Thank you, Amy Brown, for engineering, and Petra Hall for production assistance. And as always, thanks to all of our WERU listeners and supporters. So if you missed any part of this program, you'll be able to find it along with other Healthy Options programs on the Public Affairs Archives at WERU.org. And it also will be streamed online shortly after the show for two weeks at WERU.org. This is Rhonda Fine. I'm in wishing you the best in health. <laughs>